Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the StoryGrid method, developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Valerie Francis, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Jari Bolander, Anne Holly, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. Each week, we study a film as an example of a significant story principle. And this week, Kim pitched Puzzle as a great example of a global internal genre story. This American drama premiered at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival. It was directed by Mark Turtletaub from a screenplay by Oren Moverman, based on the 2010 Argentinian film of the same name, which in Spanish, stay with me here, is Rompecabezas which I hope I did right, (laughs) Uh, which was written and directed by Natalia Smirnoff. Just a quick reminder that this is an adult conversation about an adult film, and you will probably hear a few adult words. Okie dokie, Kim is going to start us off with the genre and a brief summary of the beginning hook, the middle build, and the ending payoff. Kim. The genre is a status sentimental story, and we have love and performance subplots, and also this is an excellent example of the Virgin's promise structure. Here's the beginning hook. When Agnes, a compliant and change-averse housewife, feels herself come alive while completing a puzzle she received as a gift, she's eager to get another. But when she learns the puzzle shop is a long train ride away in New York, she must decide whether to brave the discomfort of travel or stay home. She travels to New York where she buys two new puzzles and sees an ad for a champion desperately seeking puzzle partner. In the middle build, Agnes meets Robert and agrees to be his partner for the puzzle competition. But feeling unable to tell her husband Louis the truth about what she wants, she lies to keep the peace. The more she experiences the power of her own mind, the more outspoken she becomes, leading to trouble at home with Louis. Her involvement with Robert increases, as do her lies, and after a particularly bad fight with Louis, she and Robert have sex. When she accidentally oversleeps and then arrives home late to Louis waiting up for her, he asks her if she's having an affair. This time, she tells him the truth. In the ending payoff, Agnes and Robert compete at the national puzzle competition and win. But when it's time for her to join him in a flight to Brussels for the international competition, Agnes goes instead to the lake house with her sons to pack it up for sale. She calls Robert to tell him she is not joining him, even though she loves him. Instead, she takes a trip on her own to a place she's always wanted to visit, Montreal. Alrighty, now let's hear the case for Puzzle as a global internal genre story. Back to you, Kim. (laughs) Thanks, Valerie. So I've loved each of the stories I picked this season, and each one has demonstrated something that I seek to model in my own writing. I've saved this story for last because it's the closest match to a novel that I'm working on. I've been hunting for stories about women who awaken to themselves through an external performance genre, but the awakening is really the global story, and I was thrilled when I came across this film. So let's walk through Friedman's framework briefly, and then we'll get into the meat of the story. So who is our protagonist? Well, in this case, it is Agnes. And what is she like in the beginning of the story? So what is her character? Agnes comes across as weak-willed, but she does have selfless motives. Her worldview is she's naive and sheltered, and she's unaware of how intelligent and gifted she is. Her fortune, that is her external circumstances, are she's married, she has two grown sons who live at home, and she's a housewife. She volunteers, rarely ever travels, and everything about her life is in service of others. Now let's look at Agnes by the end of the story. Her character, she has developed her will, and she is strong-willed now, and she has balanced motives. So she's less, she's not selfish, but she's not selfless to the point where she's denying herself, and she's being more balanced there. Her worldview, she's now aware of her gift, and she's also aware that she's been wasting it. And her fortune, she's won the puzzle competition, she's separated from her husband, and she's turned down Robert and the trip to Brussels in order to travel to Montreal on her own. Which aspect of the story has changed the most? So we can see all three of these have changed for her. But for me, her fortune and status appear to be the thing that changes the most. And it appears to be the thing that the story is really about. 
and the other changes are what helped make that change possible. So how do we feel about this change? I think we're really proud of her. We're relieved for her that she's found her way out of that situation. And so to me, the genre that best encompasses this change is the status sentimental genre. And I'll have the cause and effect statements in the show notes. So let's talk a little bit more about a status sentimental story. In a status sentimental story, the protagonist often finds their strength of will for the first time. They learn that they have a specific will and a specific desire. It can appear as a mix of change in thought plus a change in character, where they become more sophisticated about their own motives and wants, and this enables them to pursue their specific desire and their specific change in status. But because they're not used to acknowledging their own desires, they're going to need help to achieve it. Status stories center greatly around the role of the mentor. Positive or prescriptive arcs, like the sentimental and admiration stories, have a present and adequate mentor either in the past for the protagonist or in the present of the story. While negative or cautionary arcs, like the pathetic or tragic genre, have a flawed or absent mentor. For Agnes, her character, that is her strength of will, her motives, and her adherence to her moral code, begins at a kind of negation of the negation. Her motives are to serve others, but it comes at the expense of herself. It doesn't qualify as selfishness like a morality protagonist because unlike a morality protagonist, Agnes isn't sophisticated enough to recognize that she is withholding her gift. Put this in contrast with Uva, on the other hand, who is sophisticated and is consciously hoarding his gift of service to others in service of himself. Now, Agnes begins quite naive, having lived a sheltered life, raising her family and not traveling. As the story progresses, she does grow in sophistication about herself and the world, It's different from a typical worldview protagonist in that Agnes doesn't deny her naivete. She admits the things that she doesn't understand. She asks for help, and she accepts the knowledge that's offered to her, integrating it piece by piece. This is an important aspect of a sentimental protagonist. They must be willing to acknowledge and heed the guidance of their mentors. A worldview protagonist, on the other hand, will fight hard against anything that contradicts their current mode of thought. As her worldview expands, Agnes begins to form her own definition of success, and recognizing that she is not living it, begins to take action in pursuit of a positive change for her life. So let's take a look at the life values. Status stories concern the life values of failure and success, with the generic spectrum being success as the most positive, compromise to failure to the negation of the negation, selling out, which is failure masked as success. But these values must be specifically defined for the story and the protagonist. This takes them from hollow words that aren't meaningful to a range of images and moments that are alive and represent the true change that occurs for the character. For Agnes, this seems to revolve around doing things she is good at as well as things that she enjoys and is fulfilled by. So here's how I break down the life values for Puzzle. The most positive would be true success, which equals being herself and pursuing what her heart desires, doing things she's good at and enjoys and is fulfilled by, and things that she actively wants. Success is doing things that she's good at and enjoys and is fulfilled by and doing them honestly. Compromise would be doing things that she's good at and enjoys, is fulfilled by, but she's doing them in secret. Failure for Agnes is doing things that she's good at, but that are unfulfilling, but she's actually acknowledging it. Now, selling out, that is, failure masking as success, would be basically the way her entire life has been up to this point, where she's doing things that she's good at, but they're not fulfilling. They're a waste of her talent, and she's not acknowledging it, and neither is anyone else around her. So paired with the external genres of love and performance helps demonstrate this status life values more clearly. Doing puzzles becomes a way for Agnes to explore what she wants, what she enjoys, and what she is good at. The men in her life all have their own definitions of success for her. Her husband, Louis, wants her to stay home and continue being the person she's always been. Her younger son, Gabe, wants her to join the 21st century. And her older son, Ziggy, wants her to do the things for herself that make her happy. And her puzzle partner and love interest, Robert, wants her to do puzzles with him and travel to Belgium with him. In the end, she chooses her own definition of success and follows it by choosing not to go to Brussels and instead going to Montreal, a place she's always wanted to visit, and she goes on her own. 
So Agnes does seem to start out at this negation of the negation, the selling out, which is similar to Rocky in the film Rocky, Rocky Balboa. And it's interesting to me how similar the story is to Rocky. Well, at the same time, of course, it is very, very different. And this makes me personally happy for many reasons, one of which is the character in my own novel that I'm working on is based on a similar archetype to Adrian from Rocky which is what Agnes reminds me of as well. It's these women that are locked away inside themselves and that the world around them needs them to bloom, which is very much a Virgin's Promise arc. Now, I wanted to take a moment and talk about the opening scene because I just find this opening scene amazing. And it's such an excellent example of a way to establish life values. It's done through poignant action, and I can imagine it transferring very well to the page of a novel. It opens with Agnes vacuuming in her living room. We see her setting up for a birthday party in her house. She's putting out chairs. She's putting up a banner, balloons. She makes finger foods. She bakes a cake, the whole deal. Then we see the house is full of guests, and she's carrying around a tray to them, offering them little yummy things to eat. And her husband and one of his buddies are sitting there, and his buddy bumps him, and accidentally they break a plate. And Agnes is the one to clean it up. And while she's sweeping up the pieces, she asks her husband if he's having a good time. And he says he's having a great time and that he's going to head outside to smoke with the other guys. And she says she'll call him when it's time for cake. Now, in the kitchen alone, she attempts to glue the plate back together, but she realizes she's missing a piece. And she heads back out to the living room to find it. Now, her husband returns and finds her on her hands and knees in the living room searching. And he asks her what she's doing. And, you know, she says, I'm looking for the piece. And he stops her and he asks her to get up. And he's like, not today, you know, not during the party you're so cute. And he kisses her on the head. And then she goes to get the cake. She puts the candles on and she lights it and she brings it out to a room full of people all singing. And they're singing, happy birthday, dear Agnes. And we realize at that moment, it's her birthday. And it's it's the whole thing. I think it was such an amazing moment to me when I first saw the film, like, oh my God, I cannot believe it's her birthday. So then it's only after everyone is gone that she opens her presents and she gets an iPhone, which she is immediately uncomfortable with. And she also gets a thousand piece puzzle of an old fashioned looking map of the world. She does the dishes. She pours herself a glass of wine while humming happy birthday to herself. And then she sits at the table alone, drumming her fingers on the glass, kind of in anxious energy of not really knowing what to do with herself. We see in this scene that she has sold out her life force, her talent, her will. She's compliant. She's subservient to all, even on a day that is meant to celebrate her. The turning point of this scene seems to be when she's looking for the piece, you know, doing the thing that she wants to do. And her husband, Louis, stops her. He doesn't want her doing that during the party. And he says it in a way that makes it as though it's for her sake, like just enjoy the party. It's your day. But it's really for him. It's to make him comfortable. And probably to make sure the guests aren't uncomfortable. Her crisis is whether or not to do what he says, you know, to keep the peace or to choose her own will, which would make waves. In this case, her character really only has one choice, which is to comply with Louis' wishes and stop doing what she wants to do, which is to find the missing piece and finish fixing the plate. We see this tug of war between Agnes and Louis throughout, with Agnes taking one step forward and two steps back voicing her true thoughts and feelings to finally telling the truth. I have a few more observations in the show notes. And in just a bit, we'll circle back, as always, to the big meta why of status stories. But for now, I want to leave it there and turn it back over to my wonderful fellow roundtablers. Thank you so much, Kim. I just love Friedman's framework. It takes a little while for you to wrap your head around it. But once you get that system going, it's a really great tool when you're struggling to identify the internal genre. Thank you. Okie dokie. Now we're going to hear from Anne. What you got for us, Anne? Well, you know, I've been looking at complex story forms this season, and we've sort of run out of them. And the last thing you'd say about this story is that it's complex. It's very simple. It's linear. It has a single point of view, which is Agnes's. And there's really no serious complexity to examine, which is part of what makes it so delightful and charming because it's a simple story. So instead, I decided I'd like to discuss something that struck me right away and continued to strike me throughout the movie, and I'm going to call it efficiency. There's probably a more technical term for it. I'm going to try to avoid mentioning the purely cinematic efficiencies of this movie and focus on how it saves viewer or reader time, if it were a book, and brain power, in ways that we can also use as novelists. 
Kim said offline that she felt like there was a lack of satisfaction at first when she came to the resolution because it, the movie doesn't contain resolution moments. It kind of just ends. And this is similar to a lot of literary fiction where the movie implies resolutions but doesn't actually provide them. Instead, what it does is build each character to the point where we can guess how they might wind up, but we still have questions afterwards. Now, I personally didn't identify with any of the characters, but I found them all interesting because every single bit of dialogue for every character in every scene served to make them three-dimensional and complex, so I could easily imagine outcomes for them all. Now, not providing spelled-out resolution scenes is one way you might decide to pare down your story if you're writing status, worldview, or morality. More primal story types like action or thriller or whatever probably aren't well served by that kind of ambiguity at the end. But bear in mind, if you decide to do this, you will be on the spot for building up those three-dimensional, understandable, real-seeming characters through careful selection of dialogue, actions, and symbolism. If we can't guess at their outcome because they're flat or because we have no empathy for them and don't care about their outcome, then leaving resolutions up in the air won't work. So not providing resolutions is one form of efficiency in this movie. But let's take a look at what else this movie leaves out. And it's interesting because it leaves out transitions. It's really interesting. It cuts from Agnes preparing her house for a birthday party, which Kim has just described, directly to the party. It's just we see a montage of her doing party preparation activities, and then boom, there's the party in full swing. It cuts from the party to Agnes alone afterwards, looking at two gifts, the iPhone and the jigsaw puzzle, both of which are going to play an important role in the story. We do not see the opening of other gifts or any other gifts that might have come from other people. We don't see any birthday party conversation. We see just enough party to reveal Agnes as a meek, patient wife and mother, just pouring her life force out for everybody else. Several times throughout the movie, we cut from starting a jigsaw puzzle to finishing it. Now, in a film script, I think this would read something like this. Scene 20, dining room, afternoon. Agnes dumps the puzzle pieces out onto the table and begins arranging them. Scene 21, dining room, continued. Agnes puts the last two pieces into the finished puzzle. In a novel, it wouldn't read all that differently. And this is where we can really learn something from this movie. Here's how it might go in a novel. Agnes dumped the puzzle pieces out on the table and began turning them over and then insert maybe, that would be the end of one scene, and insert double white space or a scene break, something like that. And then two hours later, she clicked the final piece into place and ran her hands over the finished puzzle. And that would be all you'd need. In another piece of great elimination, we hear Agnes tell her aunt over the phone that she's nervous about going into New York City to the puzzle shop. And then there's a hard cut to her waiting for a train. She obviously overcame her trepidation in order to go get more puzzles for herself. We have no need to see her overcoming her trepidation. Once she's in the puzzle shop, we see her spying the ad that Robert has left with the little tear-off tags on it, and we cut directly from that to her looking at his phone number on the little slip that she's torn off on the train home. We do not see her leaving the shop, going to the train station, boarding the train, none of that shoe leather. And I emphasize this because shoe leather of that type, of how people get from one place to another, is often a fault in early drafts of novels and among beginning writers. This film is so good at cutting out unnecessary transitions that it's amazingly satisfying when it decides to leave one in. The case in point that I'm thinking of is Agnes writes a text on her brand new iPhone and addresses it to Robert's number, the one that she got from the ad. We watch her type every letter. She hits send with trepidation on her face, and we continue to watch her anxious expression for 10 full seconds. That's as long as some whole scenes in this movie. Unbroken seconds, and then whoop, in comes the reply. And it's we're surprised with her. We're pleased. It's this little piece of narrative drive of just surprise, um, and it's very pleasing. She begins a response to Robert's text, but we don't see it. We cut away from it. Why? because narrative drive, that's why. What did she say back? We want to know, and we have to wait for two whole scenes to find out. 
Now, one of those scenes builds on the marriage story. She's lying awake next to her snoring husband. And the other shows Agnes at church on Ash Wednesday. It's a character development moment where we understand that she's not only active in her church, but is actually devout. And there's a wonderful piece of symbolism there. Ash Wednesday has a theme of repentance. Could it be that she'll finally have something to repent? This is not a minor point for writers, okay? In real life, things happen when they happen, but in a story, you decide whether your story is going to take place over Lent or during Ramadan or in the dead of winter based on the needs of the story, the symbolism that's available at different times of year in different weathers and settings, and the obstacles and opportunities those times and settings offer. Choices like this in well-written stories are no accident. So those two intervening scenes, The Snoring Husband and The Ash Wednesday Service, took only 20 seconds of film time. But then we get our answer. Agnes is on the train again. Whatever she texted back to Robert, it was, yes, I'll see you in New York. We do not see her get off the train, hail a cab, or walk. We cut directly to her knocking on the door of Robert the Puzzle Guy. Later in the movie, in the scene where Robert says, can I kiss you right now, Agnes knits her brow and barely shakes her head no. And then it's a hard cut to her on the train going home. Real people in a similar situation in real life would have had an awkward leave taking with some sort of explanation. There would be plans for the next meeting or not, or you know, any of those kinds of things. But those are not shown in the story. Why? Because the story doesn't need them. We move on. What it needs is to complicate Agnes's path to freedom by getting her to the next scene. That's what all stories need. Now, perhaps the most notable piece of elimination in this movie is at the start of the big puzzle contest that has been driving the fairly slight performance subplot. We see them dump out the puzzle pieces in the, in the competition room and get started, and we get just enough of the contest to see Agnes asserting her own way of doing things, and then, bam, straight to Agnes on the phone by herself afterwards, calling home to say that she won. It was a good choice because there is virtually no drama in putting a jigsaw puzzle together. This could never have been a global performance story, not about jigsaw puzzles. The elimination of transitions continues through the whole movie. Nothing is said that doesn't define characters and relationships. Nothing is shown that doesn't have Agnes moving inexorably towards her own self-realization and away from her subservience to her husband and her sons. The stakes, while not life and death, do grow more irreversible with each scene. Though there's virtually nothing in between them, the scenes themselves are as full and nuanced as they need to be. Each visit with Robert creates more intimacy between him and Agnes, and each return home finds Agnes covering, then fibbing, then outright lying to her family about where she's been until, at the climax, she can't lie anymore. The scenes themselves are quiet and fairly slow, but the hard cuts from one scene to the next without transitional material really keep this story moving along. And this is a technique that novelists can make use of. So this movie makes a masterwork to look at. We may need a few extra words to accomplish it as novelists, words like the next morning, or it wasn't till she did X, Y, Z that blah, 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 or the train was crowded, or Father Kutash's Easter homily was about light. It's just little scene setting words, partial sentences is all you need to do the same thing as these hard cuts in the film from one scene to the next. I could do a whole analysis of setups and payoffs in this film as well, but in the interest of time, I will recommend just watching the movie to see them. Every main element of the story occurs more than once, right down to the checker at the grocery store. Some are bigger and some are smaller, but nothing in this film is isolated or meaningless. It's very well written. And more than many movies we watch for the podcast, it serves up some great specific lessons for novelists. So I highly recommend if you are writing a novel, go watch this film and get some great ideas about how to cut in essentials. Well, Anne, I found this movie peculiar, disturbing, and disjointed. And I think I know the reason why after your analysis. I didn't think it had enough of the stuff in it. It just seemed too sparse. But I think the reason had something to do with the situation that Agnes finds herself in and the sparsity of the scenes. And it started for me right away when the opening scene, when she's throwing her own birthday party, I guess that's what we're supposed to feel for her since we spend the entire beginning hook really trying to figure out Agnes's life and how routine it is. 
honestly, the dialogue in this is really well done. And I do think a masterclass in dialogue, although I would probably want to add some more filler stuff, but I mean, every single word is used to full extent. (laughs) It's, you know, amazing. Even when she's literally counting down when her day will start, you know, when her husband's going to say, you know, five more minutes to wake up. What is wonderful and and the thing, the scene that I like the most is when Agnes and Robert first meet. It's a wonderful scene. It sets up Robert's character voice right away. You literally get into him really quick, that he's a sensitive man. Uh, You find out why he does puzzles later on. Um, It's kind of a lover's first meet scene, and you get a good sense of how awkward this could be or not be, and it puts you a little on edge. Agnes has ash cross on her forehead because it's Ash Wednesday, and it's a bit distracting, distracting, excuse me, in an endearing way, though, and I guess maybe this is why it just makes it so uncomfortable for me. You know, she's so innocent, yet she asks all the right questions in a sly way that's not really in her family character voice, but it's the character voice she uses for Robert. In a way, we really see how she acts in her secret world, secret world excuse me, with Robert. And as she gets more comfortable and confident and the feelings for Robert start to change, her secret world starts to bleed into her ordinary world. I mean, her son Ziggy senses that in some great scenes between them where they're literally like reversing roles. When he says, well, why don't you just leave dad? And she's like, we shouldn't be talking about that. And the dialogue's just so spot on for both of them, but so sparse. And I think that's why it just wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't as satisfying as I would have liked. The tipping point, or at least point of no return for Agnes when everything will really be different for her is in this scene with Robert where they've been hanging out for a couple of times and it's in one sense, the theme of the whole movie. You're a man of ideas. Why do you do these stupid puzzles? It's a way to control the chaos. That's ridiculous. Come on, mother, you're missing the point. Okay, what is the point, Robert? Life is messy. It doesn't make any goddamn sense. Sorry to break the news to you. Life's just random. Everything's random. My success, you here now. There's nothing we can do to control anything. But when you complete a puzzle, when you finish it, you know that you have made all the right choices. No matter how many wrong pieces you try to fit into a wrong place, but at the very end, everything makes one perfect picture. What other pursuits can give you that kind of perfection? Faith, ambition, wealth, love? No, not even love can do that, mother. Not completely. Agnes kisses Robert and then leaves. Robert's speech there at the end is a wonderful bit of dialogue that I don't think you could have done any other way. I mean, he has to say this. It's like what's truly in his heart. You would never know this unless he said it. And it remarkably sums up why Robert is Robert. So let's take a look at the five tasks of speech and see what we get. The desire, Robert clearly wants more time with Agnes. The sense of antagonism is Agnes's life at home. The choice of action Robert opens up to her about why puzzling is not a waste of time. The action reaction, Robert's arguments and Agnes challenging him. And then the expression is just beautifully done and quick. Agnes kisses Robert and then leaves. It also shows Agnes' attitude about life. She's finally doing something that makes her happy. And that's going to lead to a lot more awkward scenes as we progress on through the movie with her family. It's the very next scene, which I think is showing more of her as as a rebel, where she's at church and the priest says, would you like to do confession? She's like, no, I don't. She just did something that warrants confession and she's devout, yet she's like, nope, I'm a rebel. I'm making it happen. The next scene I want to take a look at is between Louis and Agnes. After he's come home after drinking and they had a fight, It's a telling scene about how Agnes is starting to stand up for herself and Louis's reaction to it. I told you not to wait up for me. You're drunk. Go to bed. Goddamn Agnes. You've forgotten how to listen. I never did you wrong. Ever. Louis! Oh! Jesus. 
going on? Who's filling your head with all these new ideas? Selling the land and cooking school? Fucking competition? You know what my father would have done to my mother in this situation? Not my father. Not him. If we look at the five tasks of speech in this, it's pretty obvious. The desire, Louis wants to understand Agnes's behavior. Why is she acting this way? The sense of antagonism, it's really Agnes's life with Robert because now she's starting to realize there's more to life than just me being a servant, essentially. The choice of action, uh, Louis chooses to confront her and escalates his yelling, and that's the action reaction, right? Louis yells, threatens Agnes, and Agnes is ignoring him until the expression where Louis smashes the puzzle and storms out. And Jerry, I would just say that the desire here isn't that Louis wants to understand Agnes's behavior. He just wants it to stop. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. His, Louis's desire, clearly. Yeah. Good, good point. Louis doesn't run real deep. <laughs> no, he. <laughs> that's a good point. Um, so clearly at this point, Louis thinks something's up and he is struggling to figure out why his perfect wife is literally upsetting everything in his life. But the interesting thing is, is that he's struggling to, in this scene to not do what his father did, which you can only imagine what that could be is obviously he's saying, I'm not going to hit you. Clearly there's violence implied. But what's interesting is both of these actions are in their authentic character voice. And I think it's really the point where Agnes is now changed forever. I mean, she will never go back to the way it was. She is, she's been transformed and Louis is just going to have to deal with it. Thanks, Jari. And Leslie, you're going to talk about Virgin's Promise. What have you got for us? Well, the Virgin's Promise, as we've talked about before, is an archetype. And it's a collection of conventions and events that recur in stories across time and place. The hero's journey is the archetype we're most familiar with, but there are many other options available. So generally speaking, the hero's journey involves a protagonist hero who leaves their ordinary world and must reach their potential to conquer someone or something that represents a threat to the community. They make a sacrifice and return with a boon that enriches the community. Kim Hudson gives us the term and the details of the journey for the heroine character. And in a Virgin's Promise story, again, generally speaking, the community, which could be the family or a group of friends, prevents the protagonist from reaching their full potential. The protagonist pursues their gifts anyway, in secret, until they can no longer hide their authentic self. And the community benefits from this full expression of their gifts. Now, archetypes help readers identify with characters because they have problems that are similar to, but different from our own. In short, we can relate. Not every journey a character takes conforms precisely to the hero's journey. I have a client with a series that involves a strong female protagonist that some readers have had trouble relating to. And it turned out the hero's journey just wasn't a good fit for the character. Now, once the writer saw that character's arc through the lens of the Virgin's promise, it began to make more sense. Now, along those lines, choosing different archetypes allow us to innovate the expression of the genres in our stories. They provide a pattern of meaning that readers recognize, but that is different from the conventional hero's journey. Now, finding an archetype that's a good fit for the circumstances in your story will give you examples of conventions and events to draw on when you're not sure what to do. In the show notes, I'll list several resources, but realize that there are loads of archetypal stories to choose from. So how do you find them? Well, pick up any book of mythology or folk or fairy tales, and you will find a treasure trove of these kinds of examples. These are stories that arise and stick around because they explore how to meet human needs or answer a question about how to solve intractable problems. 
you can also think about classic stories and what's happening in those beneath the surface. What anxiety was up for people during the time when those stories came out and how does the story solve the problem? Now, what's that anxiety like today? In fact, Valerie explores Dracula in just this way in her Story Grid Masterwork, and her psychological thriller Work in Progress is a contemporary retelling of the story. Now, here are the steps in The Virgin's Promise. You want to think of these as events or obligatory scenes that take the character from their life value in the beginning, for example, unfulfilled, to their condition or life value at the end, for example, expressing their authentic self. There's establish the dependent world, establish the price of conformity, the opportunity to shine, dressing the part, establish the secret world, no longer fitting in the world, caught shining, giving up what keeps them stuck, the kingdom in chaos, wandering in the wilderness, choosing their light, reordering, and the kingdom is brighter. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of these steps in the Virgin's Promise archetype because we've discussed them in Rocky, Real Women Have Curves, and the Song of the Sea episodes, but I will review some that are particularly interesting to me from Puzzle, and you can find the rest of my analysis in the show notes. The dependent world here in Puzzle is really interesting to me because it involves a combination. The protagonist is attached to their world in a way that doesn't allow them to reach their full potential or express their authentic selves. They might be dependent on others, and others might be dependent on them. Now, what gets in the way for the protagonist can be a tangible presence within their family, social group, or community, like in Real Women Have Curves. Or they can be memories or internalized values or beliefs they carry with them, as in Rocky. Now, Hudson identified four scenarios to establish the dependent world. There are material survival, protection or safety, conditional love and acceptance, or social conventions or acceptance. Now, notice how these scenarios relate to the human needs tanks that Sean has identified related to Maslow's hierarchy. Because an alternate need must be fulfilled, the protagonist can't realize their potential and express their authentic self. So in Puzzle, Agnes is depending on her husband for financial support and security, but the family is just as dependent on her to hold their domestic life together. The next step is the cost of conformity, and this represents a loss of self or potential that is left unrealized. This is, in essence, what the dependent world extracts from the protagonist to get what they need there. And this cost can manifest in different ways. And again, Agnes's circumstances represent a combination. In part, she is sleeping through her life because she's unaware that she can contribute more than just the care and feeding of her family. But she's also agreeing to live within restricted boundaries. She has a dream to visit Montreal, but she can't envision how she might get there. Now, both of these happen as a result of living a life of servitude to her family, which is not to say that being a primary care provider for your children couldn't be part of self-actualization. She doesn't seem to hate caring for her family. In fact, it provides an outlet. The menial tasks help her to quiet her mind that is moving so fast you don't really know where it's going, as Robert explains. But she could put that mental energy into activities that interest her, only she doesn't know it or how she might solve the problem. So the care and attention she gives her family allows her to avoid facing those challenges. And her husband and sons have grown accustomed to this, though they are all grown people who are capable of doing a lot for themselves. This is really demonstrated, as Kim mentioned, when she has to do all the preparation for her own birthday party. The plate that's broken 
might give her some satisfaction if she could put the broken pieces back together. But her husband urges her to get back to their guests. You're so cute, he says. There's another great example of this too, when she's getting these grown men out of bed in the morning as if they're children. And then later, Louis mentions only children play with puzzles. So there are lots of really interesting setups and payoffs with regard to the Virgin's promise in the story. The next step in this journey that I want to just mention is that the protagonist has a first opportunity to express their true potential. Again, this can arise in multiple ways. In Puzzle, while Agnes's family members are out for the day, she completes a 1,000-piece puzzle that she received as a gift from her Aunt Emily. Now, she puts it together quickly, more than once, and without ignoring her other daily chores. She gets some recognition that this is quite extraordinary because her son Ziggy comments on how unusual it is, that it's really hard to do. So she gets both her internal pleasure from having done it and the relief from her mind spinning, but then she gets a little bit of external validation for that feeling. Dressing the part is an event in the story that shows us that the protagonist really has a shot at reaching their potential. It's an aspect of their intangible dream that manifests as a tool to assist them in growing into their true nature. Now, this can be, but is not always, a literal dress. Here, Agnes buys puzzles from a puzzle shop in New York City, which gives her a physical object, a way to practice this burgeoning authenticity. And while she's there, she finds an ad that leads her to meet Robert, where she participates in a fashion show, which is trying on an aspect of her authentic self. Now, he's amazed at how quickly she puts the puzzle together with him during this audition and offers her a position as his partner in an upcoming competition. A big part of these stories involves their secret world. So once the character has seen an external manifestation of their dream, the protagonist creates a secret place in which the dream can grow. As they continue to balance the dependent and secret worlds, they fear being discovered, and they take steps to avoid it. Agnes creates her secret world by first answering the ad for the puzzle champion seeking a partner. Then, when she proves herself, they arrange for her to visit Robert's home twice a week to practice for the competition. Now, she doesn't tell her family about the competition or the practice at first, and instead claims that she's helping her Aunt Emily, who's broken her foot. Even so, her husband Louis objects because they need her around the house and to work on invoices at the garage. So we continue to see elements of the cost of conformity even as the character creates their secret world. At some point, the character no longer fits in the world and the balancing act of maintaining the secret and dependent worlds begins to fall apart. This means more discomfort in the dependent world where they cannot be their authentic selves and, of course, anxiety about the discovery of the secret world. The whole thing unravels. And we see lots of different examples of this in Puzzle. Agnes arrives late for dinner, she misses a ladies' guild meeting, and Louis accuses her of lying like a child. Confusion arises from Agnes in her feelings for and the feelings from Robert, but also she feels confusion when she reads Gabe's college essay about how she doesn't know or do anything outside the home. Now, Robert says this doesn't ring true, but she thinks it does. Finally, her Aunt Emily asks her how she is, and Agnes admits that she feels different, but her husband Louis is the same. She's changing and her dependent world isn't supporting that change or keeping up with her. But toward the end of the story, the character chooses their light. And this is when the protagonist appears in their true form before the kingdom. Agnes chooses not to go to Brussels 
to the international competition, but instead chooses to go to Montreal by herself. She has gotten what she needed from the competition and doesn't really need puzzles. For her, this journey is not about them, not about the puzzles. The preparing for and winning the competition is the transformative experience, similar to the one that Gabe says he doesn't have in his college essay. But as Robert explains, when you finish a puzzle, you have made all the right choices and everything makes one perfect picture. In the end, the kingdom is brighter. And this is the moment we acknowledge that evil has been uncovered and removed. It's not that dramatic, but basically everyone benefits from the change. Agnes's awakening and her speaking up for the expression of the authentic self inspires others to pursue their dreams. Robert begins working on his inventions again, Ziggy plans to attend culinary school, and Gabe decides to travel instead of immediately attending college. You can find the rest of my analysis of The Virgin's Promise in Puzzle in the show notes, along with a link to a spreadsheet where I'm collecting story examples of The Virgin's Promise along with the steps. Thank you, Leslie. That is awesome. We need to do more Virgin's Promise stories, I think. (laughs) Okay, so now that everyone has said their piece, Kim, what do you think of all that? Is there anything else you'd like to add? Of course. I want to circle back around to our big meta why. We've talked about status stories plenty of times in the past, and whenever we do, the big meta why is often a call to action to the mentors of the world, those whose sophistication can help improve the lives of individuals who on their own would not be able to reach success. The most significant recent example to me was when we discussed Love Actually with Sarah and her brother Michael and Carl not you know, continuing to be her love interest, and that was what we saw as a status pathetic story. But in this specific sentimental story, it seems to be more like a call to action to ourselves for ourselves. It's such a powerful example of the Virgin's promise that we all need to go through. But even the Virgin needs helpers. In this case, we have Ziggy and Robert who believe in and encourage her, Agnes, and also her Aunt Emily who gives her the puzzle to begin with. But the spark must begin with Agnes, just like it must begin with each of us. So here's how I see the controlling idea or theme. Success is achieved when we acknowledge our gifts and specific genius and pursue it with the help and encouragement of those around us, in spite of other voices telling us we shouldn't. Another big meta takeaway from this story and stories like this is that this change is just the beginning of the protagonist's journey. Agnes sums up this call to action for all of us in her comments to her son Ziggy when they're at the lake. I'm gonna miss this place. I remember the day your dad came home and said, guess what? I bought a piece of land. There's a cabin, a lake. We'll never have to think about where to go on vacation ever again. So that's why we never went anywhere. It's ironic. We had a place to go, so we never went anywhere. And now we don't have a place to go. We'll have to go somewhere, do something, be something, or someone. The Virgin's Promise archetype encourages all of us to pursue the full expression of our gifts in the stories we tell and in the lives that we lead. By doing and being our highest selves, we can positively influence the lives around us, our kingdoms, just like Agnes does for her sons. Not by serving them daily, but by being an example of self-respect and self-determination. And this is a lesson I hope we can all take away and apply to ourselves. Thank you, Kim. To wind up the episode, we take questions from you, our listeners. And this week, we have a question from someone who commented on one of the blogs on the StoryGrid website. Here's the question. I write YA fantasy. Why doesn't StoryGrid think this is a genre? Anne, you want to field that one? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Well, it's a very one-on-one kind of question, and I think it's worth coming back to and cycling back to from time to time as new people come into the story grid world, because it's a very common question. Story grid uses a definition of genre that comes from fundamental story elements like what Kim and Leslie have been talking about in such detail here today. These elements change very little over time 
and they are independent of target audience, whether that's adults, young adults, middle grade readers, or children, because the story elements of what we call the content genres can occur in books for any age or any type of reader. Content genres are not directly tied to marketing genres or what you might call bookstore genres or bookshelf genres. The story grid content genres can take place in all kinds of settings, whether they're realistic or fantastic, futuristic, historical, or contemporary. For example, you can have an action story for young adults in a fantasy setting or for adults in a future post-apocalyptic setting. You can have a horror story in a science fiction setting, classic example, the movie Alien, or a war story set in the ancient world. Love stories can take place in almost any market category for almost any audience with the possible exception of young children. You could have a Western story with vampire cowboys. Is it fantasy? Sure, but that doesn't tell you what kind of arc to expect. Fantasy, the word fantasy, does not define a story, only its degree of realism. It's the Western part there in this fake example that promises a town in trouble, a lone hero, and a showdown at high noon. If you're writing YA fantasy, what kind of story are you telling? What kind of change does your protagonist go through to get what they want and need? What's at stake? How do you want me to feel when I've turned over the last page? Answer those questions to zero in on the story grid content genre and let your marketing genre be determined by your setting, the age of your protagonist maybe, and possibly the language style and the language level that you use to tell the story. And if you have a question about content genres or global internal genres or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT or better still by going to StoryGrid.com slash resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast and leaving us a voice message. We love to hear your messages. That wraps it up for this week and for season four of the Editor Roundtable Podcast. Great job, everybody. Thank you so much, Jari, Kim, Leslie, and Anne, for your excellent editorial insights, as always. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to craft stories with a global internal genre. Okay, you'll find links and additional materials in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites are in the show notes as well. And if you want to support the show, you can do that by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. We will be back on June 6th with a whole new season of full-length story analysis and discussion episodes. But in the meantime, stay tuned for some of our popular bite-sized editions, starting next week with Too Much Information, Anne's insightful look at the uses and pitfalls of the dreaded exposition. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Okay, we're out. Thanks, everybody. Yay. Good job on season four. I want all the Yay. drinks. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. oh. Yeah, good work, everybody. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, everyone. Good job, everybody. <laughs>